Hey, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you guys. My name's Nate Wagner. I'm one of the pastors here at Portico. Welcome. As we've been saying, it is Family Sunday, and so you can expect it to be a little noisier in here than usual, and that's okay. That's a good thing. Sometimes it feels very sterile in here, and it's just a reminder that God works through human messiness to bless us. And so all of the kids who are making noises um, in their different developmental stages, um, let's try not to be irritated, let's try not to be frustrated, but to receive it with joy as a sign of God's blessing, which it is. And so thank you kids for being here. We love you, and you are part of our family here, and that's why we do this on these Sundays, as well as to give our Puerto Rico Kids volunteer peers a much-needed rest every now and then. So what we do during these family Sundays is we've been going through, um, in sermons, the storyline of the Bible, which we have um, seen, and not just us, but many churches throughout the history, as summarized by the themes of creation, fall, redemption, and new creation. And so that's kind of the grand sweeping narrative of all of Scripture. And it's the narrative that we get pulled into and that our own lives are part of. And so way back in, I don't even know when it was, maybe January was the last time we did this, we focused on the fall. And so we looked at how the fall has broken the way that God has actually created the universe to work and that that has involved both a corporate representation of Adam and Eve sinning, and therefore all of Adam and Eve's descendants are then sinners. And so we're all slaves to sin, universally. If you're human, you are in that category. However, thankfully, that's not where the Bible ends. And the whole rest of the Bible from Genesis 3 on is one big story of how God is redeeming the world and how he promises to make it all new. And so that's where we're at, and we are talking about redemption. We're going to look at one verse, one verse today. That's all we need. And it is a verse that um, I think will really help us to understand what redemption actually is. Um, because that's a huge concept. It's a, it's a category and a word that we use a lot, but sometimes we don't slow down enough to actually understand or to receive just how amazing it is. So we're going to be talking about that this morning. Um, and we're going to be spending some time in Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah in chapter 44, and we're just looking at verse 22. So the, this will be up on the screen, and then we'll just walk through it very simply. Isaiah 44, verse 22. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Please pray with me. Father, these promises, this promise of your redemption accomplished by you on our behalf, they do not come to people who are searching for you. They don't come to a people who are longing to be back into relationship with you. They come to a people who are rebelling. 
They come to a people who have been hardened. And so, Lord, as we, as we receive from your word this morning, I ask that you would open us up, that you would help us to see just how it is that you have redeemed us. And, Lord, that we would be reminded again that that does not stay in abstraction, but it actually comes to us and meets us in our life, and it transforms us. And so, God, I ask that you would speak here through your word this morning, that we would know you better, and that your spirit would help us to believe and to love you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. What are you looking for? What do you spend your time looking for? When I think about our culture, the thing that I think typifies our culture, and maybe it's all cultures, but I think we can see it now really clearly in a number of ways, is that we are searching for something. We're always looking. Google. It's a search engine. Artificial intelligence is now like a way that we've trained Google to be better. We didn't even know that was possible. And so now we're actually training machines to be better finders, to bring us back things that we are looking for. I saw somebody who actually typed into, a, I don't know what, it's a robot, a, a machine, machine learning. I don't know what it is. It's artificial, right? To some kind of AI thing. How do I become addicted to running? <laughs> Guess what? It returned a very detailed plan. The person followed it. They got addicted to running. I'm like, okay, but be careful what you wish for when you're replacing your knees. Right? <laughs> the assumption is that we know what we want, and we are getting better and better at finding the things that we're looking for. And this has been happening for as long as people have been around. We are searchers. We're looking for something. And so if you step back for a moment and think about what you're looking for, all of those little questions, all of those little searchings, what does it add up to? Why are you looking there? What's really underneath? What's behind the looking the yearning, the desires. And have you ever found something that has actually satisfied you? Have you actually found something that when you got it, when you found it, it meant that you didn't have to look anymore? There's no more looking. There's only the receiving and the finding. I think what ultimately we are looking for is something that we lost a long time ago. It's something that we've lost universally as humans, and it's that relationship with God. Going back all the way to the first one of these with creation, God created this world, and then he placed man and woman in it as the head of creation to know him in a special way, and then communicate to all the rest of creation who God is. And that's what we lost in the fall. And since that time, the entire human race 
has spent the rest of their years looking. And we don't even remember now what we're looking for. And so we look for all kinds of things. And we get really good at finding them, but it just makes us look more. It just makes us want more. And ultimately, it destroys us. And so you see this dynamic woven into the fabric of what it means to be human, this, this yearning, this looking, this searching, and it's tapping into our greatest desire. And so Scripture speaks into that and says, you are looking in all of the wrong places. You are searching within the creation when what you're actually looking for transcends the creation. And this was true of Israel. This was true of Judah. Judah's the audience for the prophet Isaiah, and he is actually commissioned as a prophet to go and to share the good news to a people who would not hear it, to a people who were going to reject it. And yet, he does it anyway, and he does it with great clarity and beauty. And so in this little verse where he boils down the longing, the yearning, the looking, the searching of Judah, and he says, here's what you're looking for. He is offering this to a people who are in exile, to a people who have been under God's discipline for rebelling, for rejecting God, and for idolatry, covered this a few weeks ago, for basically making things in creation that they can control and then worship and then try and receive what they're looking for from those things. And so the message that Isaiah gives to Judah, it's a declaration. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. So there's two different aspects of redemption that you see in this verse. The first is redemption accomplished. And the second is redemption applied. And so we're going to unpack those because they're important categories to understanding what redemption actually is and why it matters. Redemption accomplished is the term for the actual achieving of redemption when it actually happens in history and how it actually happened. And so in this verse, you see it in the past tense. I have blotted out your transgressions. In other words, God is saying to Judah, I have redeemed you. How do I know that? Well, because at the end of the verse, he says, I have redeemed you. This is how God has accomplished. It's something finished. It's not like a playbook for here's how you redeem yourselves, Judah. No, it's an announcement to a people who are rebellious. I have redeemed you. Okay, let's talk about redemption accomplished. Redemption accomplished is only understood within this context of what are you actually redeemed from? What are you redeemed from? And in this verse, there are two words that mean basically the same thing. 
just kind of like a poetic difference, of you are redeemed from transgressions and sins. Transgressions and sins. These are very churchy words that we only really hear in church and probably we don't have a great context for. And we don't really know how, does, how do those two words actually fit into our modern lives. So let's talk about what those things actually are. Transgressions and sins. So I think when you think of sins or transgressions initially, your first reaction is to say, oh, that's behavior. That's like what I do that's wrong. Those are things that I do that God doesn't want me to do. It's the rules that I break. It's like, okay, that's part of it. That's not completely wrong, but it's bigger than that. And it's bigger than that because it misses what it's a departure from. So transgressions and sins, they assume that you know, that you believe that God has created this world in a particular way. And the particular way that God has created the world is good. He has made it for the flourishing of all of creation, humanity included. And so he has woven into creation a wisdom. He has woven into creation truth and goodness and beauty. And departing from that, it's not just breaking a rule, but it's tarnishing. It's introducing something else into God's good creation. It's introducing evil into something that which was good. And so it's not just in isolation things that you do that are wrong, but it's partnering with the forces of darkness. It's partnering with evil. It's partnering in rebellion against a good God who created you, who made you for himself, and who desires that you flourish. And so sin and transgression, they are words that describe the darkest parts of life in a fallen world. Because when you go against God, you introduce those principles of decay and destruction. And so think about this for a minute, because we have gotten probably really good at identifying the things that are wrong in this world, the things that are wrong in human relationships. I mean, I had training where I had to learn about microaggressions. So I had to learn about all the ways that people kind of passive-aggressively destroy each other. And the subtlety to which hatred enters into human relationships. It's not fun <laughs> because you're like, oh, I do that all the time. If you're self-reflective at all, you're like, oh, I'm a microaggressor, right? Now, what we do is we stop there or we say, okay, here's how to make that right. And you actually, we actually end up just using the, the, um, the matter that we have, the material that we have, which is kind of our own concept of justice, 
to try and make that right. And we end up just doing the same thing. And it's this cycle that never ends. Right? We're looking for something better, but we can't find it. But if you understand the language of transgression and sin, then you also are now understanding, hey, we are transgressing and, transgressing and sinning not against something abstract, but against something personal. We are sinning against someone. We're sinning against a good creator who desires that the world would work well, who desires love and peace and justice would reign in the world that he's created. And so when Isaiah announces to Judah, I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist, he's saying something about the very fabric of the world. He's saying something that I have redeemed you but that redemption has cosmic implications. That is, there's ripple effects to it. Because I have blotted out your sins and wiped away your transgressions, there is going to be a redemptive thread that comes into creation and starts to restore things in a way that you all long for. Another thing that he says in this statement of redemption accomplished, is he says that I have wiped away those things, I have blotted out your transgressions, and then he compares them to a cloud and to mist. And I was thinking about this, and I was meditating on this this week. What does it mean? Why does he say that? Why does he compare our sins and our transgressions to cloud and mist? What's he trying to communicate about them? by using those images. And so the first thing I thought about is like, okay, I have driven on the um, Skyline Drive, the Blue Ridge Parkway, in a cloud, right? The cloud comes down and sits on the mountains. And you're driving through winding road. There's deer that are kind of, you know, a little bit suicidal and step into the road. There's other cars who are probably not paying attention or can't see you. And if the cloud is really thick, it's a very terrifying experience, if you've ever had that, because your vision is blurred. Your field of vision is only a couple of feet in front of you. You can't see what's coming. You're lost, right? Your reality is right in front of you, but you can't see anything above and outside of that kind of field of vision. And it's very worrying. It's anxiety produ- producing because you don't know what's coming and you feel finite. You feel limited. You also just feel a little bit depressed. So you're disoriented because you can't see where you're going, but you are also kind of just dampened a little bit, right? You're muted because it's one color. You used to be able to see greens and blues and reds and yellows and browns, golds, all of the creation, but it gets shrouded, and you just see gray and gray and gray. And for a little while, there's a novelty to that. It's like, oh, this is fun. 
But if you are in a mist, if you're in a cloud for long enough, you start to forget what color is. And the vibrancy, the warmth, the life that is all around us in the world starts to kind of fade into a memory. And this is what sin feels like, isn't it? Think about it. When you do something that you know is going against what God desires for you, the feeling that comes next, there might be an initial excitement, an initial enjoyment of it. That's part of the deception. But I'm talking about what comes next. What comes after that that is usually fleeting and fast? There's an emptiness. There's an isolation. There's a mist that comes into your soul and clouds your ability to see. And what it's ultimately clouding you from is it's clouding you from God. It's clouding you from walking with the Lord, walking in step with him. Because you've rejected him. And that's ultimately what it is. And so when Isaiah says that your transgressions are like this, he means for us to understand that experience. To remember our transgressions ultimately are what separate us from God and introduce all of the dysfunction that we experience in this world. And it's because of those transgressions. And those feel extremely real to us. When we are in the midst of them, our transgressions feel like the most real thing that there is. We feel enslaved. We feel trapped. We feel stuck in them. We feel like maybe there's nothing outside of them. Maybe there is no way out. And I'm just going deeper and deeper into this cloud. And God's just watching me go. Or maybe he's forgotten about me. Maybe he doesn't even know I'm here. I can't see him. He can't see me. And this is the, uh, the this problem is the other aspect that Isaiah wants to show us. And this is actually even more important than that first aspect of kind of like that, um, the experience of our dysfunction, the experience of our sin. He's also comparing it to something here. Because notice, he says, I have blotted them out like mist and like a cloud. And so as real as being in a cloud and being in mist is and feels, the actual substance of them gets burned up and burned away by the sun. The sun hits the morning fog and it dissolves. It just disappears. It goes away. It doesn't have any real substance to it. And so when he's using this image to describe redemption and how God has redeemed us, how he's redeemed Judah, he's comparing the mercy of God, the work of God, the power of God 
to our transgressions. And what he's saying is that it's like mist. And that says way more about the power of God than it does about our transgressions. Because our transgressions are real, right? We know that because we've felt the consequences of it. We've seen the detrimental effects of it. They are real. They are serious. This isn't a way of saying, oh, it doesn't actually matter. What it's doing is it's introducing the power of God into the equation. And it says, when the power of God comes and meets your transgressions, poof, like a cloud, like morning mist, gone, like it was never there. This is a category that Israel and Judah would have understood. They had this system of sacrifices that alluded to this redemption. It was burning of offerings. It was a ceremonial placing their sin and their transgression onto an animal and then destroying the animal, sending it outside the camp, burning it up, watching the smoke rise, and seeing symbolically, that's like our sins before God. He has forgiven us. But here's a problem. This is coming to Judah in exile. And so there would have been a huge question for the Israelites who were receiving this message. How can this be? We are not actually going through these rituals. We're not offering our sacrifices. We aren't fulfilling our part of the deal with God. So how can it be? How? God's saying it, but how can it be true? And this is where zooming out of Isaiah and understanding that Isaiah is pointing all of his audience towards the future is really important. God is operating outside of time. And so when he announces to Judah that he has done this, Isaiah is foreshadowing the person and work of Christ, of Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of that sacrificial system. And so it is his life, his death, his resurrection that accomplishes every single aspect of their redemption. But not only their redemption. In 45, verse 22... Isaiah makes another proclamation. He says, Turn to me and be saved. This is the Lord speaking through Isaiah. All the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. All the ends of the earth. And that includes us. That includes an audience that's thousands of years removed from this original message. And it's showing us that God's redemption was planned outside of time but it was accomplished in human history through the fulfillment of all the promises that he made to Israel. And all of the promises that he made to Israel were fulfilled in Jesus, in his life, his death, his resurrection. So that is what actually accomplished our redemption. That when Jesus died on the cross, that is the moment in history when our sins disappeared like mist, when the cloud was lifted, 
And it's for that reason that the Apostles' Creed focuses so much on that. We read that for the call to worship this morning. It's the actual historical events that have accomplished our redemption. So that means for you, friends, the best thing that has ever happened to you in your life happened about 2,000 years ago. Because it is then that you were redeemed. So that's redemption accomplished. It's the disappearance of the mist. It's the cloud lifting, the sun shining. All of creation being restored and made new. But that's not all that's in here. In here is a desire for this to happen and work itself out in our own lives. So yes, it happened, and for Israel it would happen. For us it has happened. But now there's a present tense call that is put out, and it's returned to me. Now, I think when we first read that, just through, and this could just be me, when I first read that through my lens, I think of that as kind of like, oh, that's like an invitation. That's God saying, oh, return to me if you want to. But actually, when you look at how the mood of this verb, it's a command. Return to me. It has force. It's the same type of command as let there be light. And there was light. So this is the voice of God coming to his people and causing the relationship to be restored. God is calling his people and his people obey. They return to him. The type of command that this is, this isn't, this isn't return to me so that you can do all of the things that I need you to do. This isn't return to me so I can punish you. This is a return to me in the way that I wanted to relate to you apart from sin. Return to me. Return to the flourishing. Return to the goodness, the truth, and the beauty that is found with me, that I am the source of and there is no other. Return to me. And who heard this in Judah? Well, not many people. Judah continued to trust in other saviors. They continued to look for other sources of redemption. And yet God blessed them anyway. He did restore them. And he kind of showed them, hey, Judah, this is how much this is my work and not your work. I'm going to use Cyrus, who is not of the tribe of Judah, who's a Gentile, to actually be your shepherd to bring you back into the land. But Cyrus pointed to something better. He pointed to a better shepherd that would bring all of God's people back into relationship with him into communion with him, into fellowship with him. And of course, that was Jesus. Jesus is the better Cyrus. 
He's the better shepherd. And what happens in the lives of all of God's people is that there's a point in time where they hear very clearly that return to me, the return to me of Jesus, and it comes to you. And this is really important, friends, because I don't want redemption to be abstract. That's really dangerous. If you leave redemption as just a historical reality, as just something that you assent to informationally, then the return to me is going to fall flat. The implications of it are going to be missed. You're not going to be looking for them. So instead, I want you to hear this call. I want you to hear the command that God issues to his people, return to me, come back. I'll restore you. And here's how you know that you are hearing that. It's when you start to become convicted of sin. It's when you start to see the areas of your own life that you have been operating in selfishness with and where you actually have now a newfound desire and longing to be reconciled and restored to God in that. So maybe for the first time, you have felt bad. You felt convicted about when you're picking on your sibling. When you get frustrated with them, and so you just start hitting them, or calling them names, or taking things from them. And you realize, and it usually happens through maybe a parent or a friend, and scripture, you realize, oh, God has something better for me. And when I'm doing that, I actually don't like it. I don't like how that feels, and I want something better. And you realize, God has made that disappear. He's made it disappear. He's put an end to it. And now I can turn back and go to him. And I can be restored, and I don't have to act in selfishness anymore because I've been forgiven. Maybe it's a realization And this, I think, is one of the most prevalent ones, especially for people who grow up in the church. Maybe it's a realization for the first time that you have made your relationship with God about what you do for God. You have made your relationship with God contingent on the good things that you do, the fact that you are a good person. Maybe you have lost sight of the reality That even your best works, when they are done apart from the Spirit of God, are filthy rags before him. They're not neutral. They're not okay, but just insufficient. No, Scripture says they're filthy rags. Because it's an attempt to say, God, I don't actually need you. I'm pretty good on my own. And you grow in pride, and it's really subtle. And so... You think, you think things like, oh, I don't really understand the gospel because I'm actually a pretty good person. 
Tim Keller has said this, and it's true. We need to be saved from our good works just as much as our bad works. And so when you hear that, when you understand, when you start to make the connections between this life that you are living on your own, searching for things apart from God, when you are your own God, when you are worshiping the creation, when you are looking for things that, to satisfy you that will never satisfy you, and all of a sudden it's like the light comes on, the cloud lifts, and you hear the command of God, return to me. That is the Spirit of God applying the work of Christ, applying the redemption that he has accomplished for you, he's applying that to you in real time. Look for that. Long for that. Mine the depths of his word. Pray for it. There's nothing better than that. You will stop looking when you find that. You will sell all you have when you find that because it's the only thing that meets those deepest desires that you have for a world of perfect and good. And we found that. We have heard, as God's people, we have heard his command to return to, to him. He has caused us to return to him. He has caused us to leave our, transge- our transgressions, to leave a, where they are, the things that we try and satisfy ourselves with that aren't him, and we have returned to him. But it doesn't end there. And I want to point us to how we should respond when we hear that, when redemption is applied to us, how we should respond. And we go to the teacher of creation. Because in Isaiah, the very next verse after this announcement of God as Redeemer through the person and work of Jesus and this command to return, you see the response the right response to these things. And it's in verse 23. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest and every tree in it, for the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. Now here's what that says. Here's what that shows us. Think about in Romans 8, where Paul reminds the audience and us that creation is under a curse and groans, that creation is subjected to a cruel master, that all of creation is actually in subjection to futility and wickedness. They have a cruel master. And when creation sees the Lord's redeemed. When creation sees the turning away from sin and back to God, creation sings and rejoices. Why? Because they know that God 
is now going to be imaged and communicated truly by his people. And that creation will be set free. And that the ripple effects of the people of God, as they are redeemed, will be redemptive. And so all of creation sings. The mountains dance. And they look forward and they foreshadow a day where that work will be finished. Where new creation is our lived experience. And that's what we look forward to. Until that day, we live a life of returning to the Lord. We live a life lived in mist and cloud oftentimes. And we have to do the work of seeing and remembering and reminding each other that you have been redeemed and that the Lord has done it. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your promise. We thank you for your work. We thank you for your word that has shown us how you have redeemed us, Lord. And we ask that you would give us joy, that you would fill us with rejoicing because all of the things that we are looking for in this life, in this earth, Lord, you have answered by redeeming us, by bringing us back into relationship with you and by showing us who you are, how good you are, and that the power of your love is so much stronger, so much infinitely greater than even the darkest of our sins. So Lord, I ask that the freedom that is being offered, that is being proclaimed in your gospel would be received, that we would see it, and that we would all come to you, Lord, expectantly, and that you would help us this morning to respond with joy to the salvation and the redemption that you have worked in this world. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.